The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. And your copy of God's Word to Colossians 4, verse 7. 7 through the end of this book, verse 18, will be the focus of our attention this morning. And today's really is, is actually the final message in our incomparable series, but it will not be the last time that we speak about the greatness of Christ around here, will it, church? It will not be the last time, as we've seen all along the way over the last several months in this book, Colossians has had one theme, the greatness of Christ. If we're going to say it another way, Jesus is supreme. As we saw in the earliest chapters, He is head over all creation. He is the head of His church, this one and every other church that gathers in His name. See, Christ has the answer when many claim to have answers. His manner of life is superior to any other life, to any other way of living, to any other philosophy of how we should live our life. In a day when we are searching for solutions or searching for answers or looking to our leaders for help, Colossians then brings us back and exhorts us to set our minds on the things that are above, to set our minds where Christ is and not on the things of this earth. In a day when anything goes, where the mantra of life is to be true to yourself, Colossians teaches us to put off sin and to put on righteousness. For he is, Jesus is truly incomparable, and his way of life is incomparable. Colossians began and will now end with Christ. It began specifically with reasons to be thankful for the community, or the family, the community, the community of believers in Christ, for those that are glad to be in the family, those that are praying gratefully, those that love the gospel, and those that are growing in their faith. And now, as we'll see, Colossians will end on much the same note, though it will extend our viewpoint to the community of believers beyond just the, the, the community here. It, it expands our view to that interconnected community of believers in different small groups, different churches, different cities that are all committed to proclaiming the greatness of Christ and living according to His ways. Colossians, as we'll see here in a minute, will end by painting us a picture of what a healthy, growing, vibrant body of believers uh, where Christ is actually the head and where its people are functioning as the, the body. It is painting us a picture of people to be thankful for and to do life with. See, when your faith is under scrutiny, when the world seems to be falling apart and when you are wondering if Jesus really is who he says he is and if he can do what only he can do, who do you want beside you? Who do you want to come running in your time of need? Who do you want to ask the questions and find the answers? With whom do you want struggling on your behalf in prayer? Who do you want speaking truth into your life? I'd venture to guess that it is the type of people whom we will read about in these verses. These are the type of people you want in your life. So look at the text. I'm going to read it here. These aren't just uh, names for us that mean nothing, but actually have a treasure trove of truth for us and our community. Colossians 4, beginning in verse 7 to the end of the book, say this, Tychicus will tell you about my activities. 
He's a faithful brother and faithful, or beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. With him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Among And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is God's word for God's people. Now, as I read through these verses here and mention these names, you should note this. It's a unique blend of people all rallied around a common cause of the gospel work. While Paul's sending greetings to these people, uh, remember, these are many of these are people that he may have never met. Though the workers here with him are the ones who've been with him for uh, many years, these that he is writing to are just ones he knows by reputation, by association for their gospel work. And these are ones with him and that he's writing to that have come from a variety of backgrounds. God, in his providence, has put them into one another's life, connecting them, rallied around this gospel ministry. And so there are many names in the list, and just for helpful, uh, to, to be helpful and to maybe bring some clarity, I just put together a, a quick chart here on the screen. I just want you to look at it uh, for just a, a second here. You can take a picture of it. I'm not going to actually go through it. We'll uh, go through it. If you want, you can write it down uh, a little bit here. But this is uh, just where those folks are found. Some like Justice, also known as Jesus, and Nympha, they're unknown. This is the only place that they are mentioned. And some like uh, Mark or John Mark get mentioned a lot throughout our New Testament. But take a photo, write those things down, and note this. What's the bottom of the passage here? For what is Christ writing? Why are these verses in the Bible? Well, it's to show us this, that God graciously connects us to a community of believers for our growth and the advancement of the gospel. We all have a list of names just like the one that's on there. And if you're writing those down, we'll put it back on here for just a second. So give them a minute to write this down, and then we'll put that list back up there for just a, a second here so they can, uh, if you're going to write all those down. If you have a study Bible, you have all those things in your study Bible too. But as we write this down, God graciously connects us to a community of believers for our growth and the advancement of the gospel. This is why this includes these sections here. It's not just mere personality, things so we can understand and trace the history of it all, but it's why he is writing here. God has connected them. He puts us in community for these two purposes, for our growth or their growth and for the advancement of the gospel to new places. 
But really then the text will begin to teach us then, well, how does that happen? How does this happen? In, in how do we grow and how does the gospel advance? Well, here's the picture that this is painting for us. Here's uh, really your first point. I know we're blitzing through these here. We'll, we'll get them uh, as we go. But our community grows and the gospel advances when we send people to encourage other gospel work. Why is that first point? That's at the center, but now the how. How do we grow personally? How does our community mature and grow and the gospel advance? Well, it advances when we commit ourselves to sending people to encourage other gospel work. The first portion of this text really only speaks of two guys that Paul is now sending back to Colossae, Tychicus and Onesimus. Now, Tychicus, was, uh, he's mentioned some five times in the, in the New Testament. He, as we learn in Acts, joins Paul in the ministry there in Ephesus and had become a valuable companion of Paul. He, he, you can imagine all that they experienced together as Paul was planting churches and making disciples and going from city to city preaching and, and uh, meeting with people in Tychicus along his side. And so he gets this triad of, of commendation and affection. He calls him a beloved brother. Not just a brother in Christ, but a loved, a beloved brother and a faithful minister, or literally a deacon, a servant here of Christ and a fellow slave. It says in your Bible, a fellow servant, but it's the same word as bond a servant or bond slave from the uh, previous passage of a couple weeks ago here. Meaning here that even though Paul maybe seems to be like the spiritual one, the mature one, and, and, and uh, Tychicus coming alongside, he's showing that no, there's equality under the cross, that they are both equal. They are fellow slaves of Christ Jesus in this work that he is sending. Onesimus likewise. Onesimus will actually learn about much about the next couple weeks as we uh, finish up Colossians today and next Sunday and Sunday after we'll jump into the book of Philemon. And uh, I don't want to give it all away there, but he really is the main focus of Philemon for Onesimus was Philemon's slave who had run away as an unbeliever and somewhere in God's providence met up with Paul and had become a Christian and now was working alongside uh, Paul. And he's called, look at a faithful and beloved brother. Nothing mentioned actually about his slavery, probably to avoid the confusion here, where Paul's uh, talk, uh, always emphasizing our slavery to Christ, our service of Him. But these two are now being sent with a message to encourage them, look at verse 8, to encourage their hearts and to bring uh, news of God's work uh, in and through Paul and what he is doing. Now note this, these aren't just like message boys, right? Like Aaron boys that they're sending. No, Paul will be sending them on an arduous journey from Rome to Colossae. Many, many, many miles. And not just via airplane, not even via car. But weeks long, if not months long, message to bring them these gospel truths. Now the Christ-centered exposition commentary has a helpful kind of explanation of this. So let me just read this lengthy quote here. It says this, In the first century, messenger were more than mail carriers. So don't think of these guys like your local postman, right? They were personal emissaries who also served as official representatives of the senders. Their role included delivering the letter, publicly reading the message, and providing oral commentary on behalf of the author. Paul deputized them in this way by noting, Tychicus will come to you with all the news about me, and together with Onesimus they will tell you about everything here. 
In addition to carrying the mail and serving as personal representatives of Paul, these particular disciples of Christ also uh, doubled as messengers of Jesus. The Colossians had received the gospel and it continued to spread throughout the world just as they were invited to participate in God's global mission. The Lord commissions all believers as ambassadors of Christ to carry the message of reconciliation. That's found in 2 Corinthians 5. We have been entrusted to deliver the good news of Jesus to a world in desperate need of Him. As the Spirit of God leads people to place their faith in Christ, we must enlist them also as fellow messengers to participate in this mission. End quote. And so these guys were not just message boys, but in their hands, very likely, they had this letter to Colossae and the letter to Philemon that they would be carrying, and also this letter to Laodicea that we don't have in many scholars. Also, uh, guess that they probably had Ephesians with them as well. And so now here are two trusted brothers, beloved brothers, faithful servants of the Lord with an incredible responsibility. Just think of all the truths that we know from Colossians and the greatness of Christ and what we'll learn about next week and the week after in Philemon about our oneness in Christ that leads us to reconciliation and to love for one another and the truths that we love about our salvation and our reconciliation is found in Ephesus. Imagine what they are carrying in their hand and what might have been lost if they had, you know, taken that responsibility not so seriously. But imagine also, with Paul, the bittersweet feelings of sending these two beloved brothers out. Brothers, one he likely led to Christ and has seen mature from, uh, uh, from the lost saved and now maturing in Tychicus, who's been along uh, with him in ministry. And now, uh, ever so bittersweet, he is sending these brothers out to go back and to be a part of the work that God is doing in Colossae bring this message and to deliver it there, it's likely the same bittersweetness that we've experienced sending out the Dowdies and the Feldmans to plant living hope. To families that we love that uh, have served faithfully here and as we send them out to plant that church to be a part of the work up in, in uh, South Austin there. Bittersweetness. It's the same bittersweetness that we experience every time we multiply small groups. And people that we love, we're now sending to continue gospel ministry in another part, in another home of our city. Praise God for it, right? But it is bittersweet, is it not? And we're like, yeah, amen. It's, it's good, but it is also hard. But see, here's the thing. We grow. The gospel advances. When we multiply and we send out some, when we send out some to church plants and to small groups and to other cities as people move and things, we grow, our community grows. Gospel advances when we send out others to encourage other gospel works. But here's the thing, even though some go, all of us are sent out ones. All of us have been sent with a message, just like the quote uh, alluded to here. All of us are sent out ones into our community. Every Sunday, at the close of our worship, we end with what uh, phrase? You are, come on, you are... Love, that's right. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord. Uh, beloved uh, uh, sons and daughters of the King. And it is our reminder, yes, that we are deeply loved, but also that we are strategically sent out. 
that we are loved and sent, and we remind ourselves at the end of each service of these truths that we would go in the love of Christ to share the love of Christ. And see, healthy, growing, vibrant churches are sending and equipping each person back into their neighborhood, back into their school, workplace, wherever you have influence, the sports that you're involved in with the kids, the extracurricular things that you do and are involved in. See, he, we are then sent to talk about Jesus, to invite into the work that God is doing here in our church through redemption. We are sent leaving margin to serve and to volunteer in the places where you have passion, to leave margin to serve the people that you work with, that you serve with in these places. So redemption, we live sent. We live sent, making disciples, encouraging the hearts of others, telling the story of God at work in and through this church. And see, here's the thing. Not only will others be impacted by this, but you yourself will grow. Our community will grow and mature in the gospel, and the gospel will advance as we commit ourselves to being sent, to living sent, and sending others to encourage this work. But how else does it happen? If God, by His grace, con uh, graciously connects us to a community of believers here, how do we grow? How does the gospel advance? Well, here's the second point. When we come together in gospel work. Not only does our community grow in the gospel advance when we send others, but also when we come together in gospel work. Look at this next section here, beginning in verse 10 of the passage. There are six people that are referenced here. First, Aristarchus, who's called a fellow prisoner. He also uh, joined up with Paul in his ministry there in Ephesus with Tychicus there. Mark, who uh, we'll speak more on in just a, a minute. Mark, who we know, wrote the Gospel of Mark, who was a companion later of uh, Peter in ministry, uh, Barnabas and Paul uh, early on. He's now with Paul as well and Jesus or his justice. And look at what is said about these guys. They're men of the circumcision. These are Jewish brothers who are joining Paul in the work. But what maybe isn't so uh, 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 obvious here is then afterwards here, you have Epaphras, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas who are Gentiles. Six people, Paul, uh, uh, as he's writing this, putting them together to show here you have Jews and Gentiles coming together in this gospel work. See, we come together, we grow in our faith, the gospel advances when we come together in this gospel work despite our differences. Despite our differences, a healthy, growing, vibrant church where Jesus is the head is an eclectic group of men and women rallied around Jesus, bringing their gifts to the table. See, we see the beauty of the gospel even in this. As we've told, Christ is the head and He is holy. Our sin has separated us and created the barriers, has created the division that exists between humanity, between individuals because of the differences of where we grew up and what we look like and how we speak and all the, you know, the various things that we look to divide on. Christ is made supreme. The gospel is what brings us back together that despite those things, Christ standing in our place as we repent and believe and walk in this newness of life, it brings us together despite those differences to rally around the one thing that matters most. Christ. Coming together in this gospel work. Repenting and believing and inviting others into that. 
And so often we're looking for church and we're looking for those that are in our age group, that of people that look like us or that are parenting kids at the same age or in this season of life that we are may, may or may not be. But the picture painted here in churches like this that are growing in the things of the Lord are very different. People just rallied around the gospel. You hear in the verses, you have a former slave with a doctor. You have Jews and Gentiles. You have people from various uh, parts of the Greco-Roman world coming together in this gospel work, all by God's grace. They come together, and despite their differences, but also believing in change. Believing in change. Now, this isn't necessarily come to the surface here, but as you begin to study these guys, there's, uh, there's, there's some importance in their stories. Now, as I was referencing John Mark here just a moment ago, maybe you know the story or not, you can look up those verses later and begin to see that John Mark has had an interesting ministry journey. It begins uh, there as uh, in Acts 13, as, as Paul and Barnabas are commissioned to go, and John Mark goes with them. But for some reason, we're not given all the details. Uh, uh, John Mark abandons the mission, goes back home. We're not told why. And, and so then later, a few chapters later, as they're, as they're heading out, uh, again, Barnabas now wants to take John Mark, and Paul's like, ain't no way. Ain't no way. This mission is too important. The gospel is too important. We can't have quitters on our team. It leads to such a sharp disagreement, it's called that Paul and Barnabas, actually this dynamic duo of church planters, actually split over it. Barnabas, I guess, as we learn here, Mark is his cousin. Uh, go, they, those two go and begin to do gospel ministry, and Paul recruits Silas to come with him, and now we have two gospel works happening. And now we have no idea what happens in the interim there, but somewhere along the way, uh, Paul... Now, whether his heart is softened or John Mark, things get worked out, he is now alongside Paul in this ministry of reconciliation together. See, we believe in change. We hold out hope. And while we have a bright spot in this, not knowing all the details of John Mark's re uh, reconciliation and coming back to it, we, get, we, we will begin to learn here of a man named Demas who's just mentioned, nothing is told about him, but it's almost like he's just an afterthought here. He's like, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, and as does Demas. Like, oh yeah, the other guy with us. He's mentioned three times. We don't really know much about him. He's mentioned here. He's also mentioned in Philemon at the end, but then in Paul's last letter that he wrote in 2 Timothy He's in the Mamertime prison, and he's writing to uh, Timothy uh, there. And at the very end, he says, Demas, in love with the present world, has left us. Maybe Demas here is serving faithfully, but there it ends in sadness. He will soon abandon the work. And while in God's providence, we have kind of these two contrasting stories within it, people coming together. Here's the thing, redemption. We must always hold out hope for change and reconciliation. Even in the worst of scenarios, even when those abandon the work, even when those are hardened to the things of God, even when, 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 uh, when it is not going well, we hold out hope and we believe in change as we come together. And this advances the gospel. This is what grows us What's very interesting, in the same letter in 2 Timothy, where we learn of Demas' abandonment, Paul also tells Timothy this in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. Just listen to this. He says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, 
The Lord's servant is all of us. We who serve the Lord, not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And see, the manner in which we speak, the manner in which we minister, is just as important as the message that we proclaim. With gentleness, with truth, with patience, with kindness. And then he gives the reason why. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. See, always our manner is important. Why? Because we're holding out hope, God, that He is in the business of change. He, his kindness leads to repentance. And so we too can be kind. We can't stop believing that change is always possible. Even when the writing may be on the wall, like it was for Paul here with Demas, even when it's right, we cannot stop holding out hope. It keeps us humble. It keeps us praying, which is another reason why we come together. So we come together under the gospel, uh, uh, despite our differences, believing in change. But here's another thing in this text here, always struggling in prayer. Coming together in this gospel work, struggled in, struggling in prayer. And I like this, uh, this, this uh, little snapshot we get of Epaphras in verses 12 and 13. Epaphras, if you remember from several months ago, he's already been mentioned. Back in, in chapter 1, verse 7, he was the one who came from Colossae to find Paul in Rome and to deliver a, a gift and to bring this encouragement as an ambassador of this church to uh, Paul now in prison. He brought the reporters. Listen here in one seven. it says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so now Epaphras has come to him. It's believed that he was uh, the, the church planter of the church in Colossae. That he, uh, somewhere along the way, uh, was saved under Paul's preaching ministry and then went home and planted this church. And he not only greets the people that he loves, but look what it says about him. He's struggling in his prayers. Do you struggle in prayer? Do you struggle to pray? Yeah, me too, but that's not really what he's referring to here. I think we all struggle to pray. We struggle to find you know, the, the watchfulness and the alertness in here, but this, this, that's not really like we all probably struggle to find time to pray. And try, that's, that's not, he's struggling. Literally, he's agonizing. He is working his soul out in prayer, praying to the point of exhaustion. It's pretty phenomenal, isn't it? always agonizing on their behalf in his prayers. And what is he praying so intensely for? Two things. One, that they would mature in Christ, and specifically that they would be fully assured in God's will. He is laboring for these people that he loves, that they would grow and mature in the things of God and their understanding of who he is and how God desires them to live. He was praying that they would be fully assured, convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt of their salvation, of their sanctification, of God's goodness and purposes and truthfulness and his will that they be sexually pure that they struggle through suffering with joy, that they be joyful in all things and thankful and prayerful. These things that are God's will, that they would be assured in their submission to the governing authorities. 
See, here's the thing, church. We grow. The gospel advances when we come together and we pray like this. Just imagine what would be different in your family and your small groups if your prayers were categorized by agonizing in prayer. Or after we were done praying, we were as winded as we were by going on a run. By struggling Imagine how our personal prayers would be different. Our, the things in our life, the neighbors, the people we want to see come to Christ. As we come together, not only we, but inviting others to pray like this. Epaphras apparently isn't just a praying man. but He's also a hard-working man as well. See, we grow, the gospel advances when we come together working hard for others. Verse 13, Paul's like, I give him witness. I can testify that Epaphras has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. And I read that, and here's the question that comes to mind. like, what could he possibly be doing? <laughs> a long way from there. What, what is he doing? How is he working hard for these believers over there? The reality is it doesn't really matter. The point is he is working hard, and they are being blessed, and they apparently knew whatever it was about or you know, the Tychicus or Onesimus would be able to uh, elaborate more. We don't know, but here's the reality. Doesn't so much ministry happen when nobody else is looking but God? Even when we don't know. See, he is working hard on their behalf. We don't know. It doesn't matter. It's just the fact is that he is, and they're going to receive the benefit and the blessing. So much ministry work happens like this. The hours that our musicians put into practicing the, the hours that our Redemption Kids teachers put into preparing their lessons, the hours that preachers put into studying, the, the hours that our small group leaders put into getting the house ready and going deeper in their own study, in their own application, in preparation to facilitate discussion and to lead their group, the hours that are put into ministry. And as we put it all together, guess what happens? We grow and mature in the faith and the gospel advances into new places. And guess what? God is glorified. And isn't that what we want? Isn't that our ambition in our life? That God is glorified. That we would be growing in the faith. And that through us, the gospel would be continuing on. The good news of Christ would be advancing. This is our ambition, is it not? pray that it is. I pray that it is. And it happens when we devote ourselves to these things. Of sending uh, other workers to encourage gospel workers. Of coming together in the gospel. And here's the third and final point in the picture that we get in the verses here. It also happens when we send encouragement to other gospel workers. In verse 15, the greeter changes. Whereas these other six were sending their greetings. Now Paul has greetings for the siblings, the brothers and sisters in Laodicea, and to an unknown woman named Nympha who is hosting a church in her house. Apparently a woman with some means who has a big enough house that a church is gathering there. And to this man named Archippus, who we will learn more about in well, he's included in the greeting in Philemon. Maybe some speculate he might be Philemon's son, but for sure he's a leader in the church with a public ministry, and he receives a public exhortation here. And so how do we send this encouragement to other gospel workers? Well, it looks kind of in two different ways here, in general encouragements and specific exhortations. Look at how he said, just give my greetings, right? Uh, make sure this letter is read. In other words, like stick to the word. 
Read this letter then to remember my chains. Grace be with you. It is just the simple encouragement that they are given to these other believers. Redemption. Don't underestimate the impact of simple yet thoughtful encouragements to one another. Simple and thoughtful. Not just like, hey, good job, thanks for doing that. But simple, thoughtful encouragements that will bless others and add value and put courage into their service, put courage into their faith. Not so that they can pat themselves on the back, but that all glory would be uh, received uh, uh, by the Lord through our efforts. See, if God puts somebody on your mind, you're being served by a brother or sister. Don't pick up your kids or get coffee. You're greeted. They're laying in bed and God puts somebody on your mind. You're going about your day and the Lord puts somebody on your mind. Tell them, encourage them in the things of the Lord. You never know what's going on in somebody's life. You never know what might be happening there. And God has uh, very providentially put them on your mind as the ones who are going to pray because they need the courage in that moment. They need the truthfulness that you will bring from the Scriptures and just by sending that uh, Bible-saturated prayer to them. Don't underestimate what God will do as we send encouragement to others who are serving, other gospel workers, other friends in the things of the Lord. Just even in those general, simple encouragements, but also in the specific exhortations. Look at this verse in verse 17. This man named Archippus, he just has a very straightforward, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And now we read that and it's ambiguous to us. What ministry? What is he doing? Is he slacking? Is he, is he not fulfilling it? Is he, is, he, you know, or is he doing a good job and he just needs some encouragement to keep going? It's ambiguous to us, but apparently not to him. He has this public ministry and he gets this public exhortation to continue on. To be a good steward of the gospel opportunity that God has given him. To not drop the ball to give it his best, to be excellent in the responsibility that the Lord has given him to fulfill it and to keep it going and to advance it down the field. This is what he's being called to do. I wonder if it's very similar to his role of like our small group leaders. Very specifically this morning, small group leaders, fulfill your ministry. Lead, shepherd, teach your people. Set a godly example in character and self-disclosure and humility. You've been given a tremendous responsibility to care for God's people. Steward them gently. Steward them patiently. Steward them graciously. Steward them humbly. All to the glory of God. Fulfill your ministry. But this is for all of us as well. This is, we, we can give specific exhortation to the people that God has put in our life. You have opportunity to encourage others that you serve with on a ministry team, that you serve with in small group, that you serve in, in the community with. We know people amongst us, these the people that have left them. We know people that we love that have moved at jobs or other life circumstances have moved them to different cities. Maybe you've moved here from a different church that you love and you know others in the church you were once part of. 
Maybe you've met people along the way in our sister churches, men through like man camp and things. Encourage them, exhort them specifically as you have influence, as you can uh, put courage into their life. Do remember, church, we are an interconnected community of believers in different small groups and different churches of different cities that are all committed to proclaiming the greatness of Christ and living according to His ways. This is God's grace to us. But the picture we have here is what a healthy, growing, vibrant church looks like where Christ is actually the head and its members are all living and functioning as what a body is supposed to be like. These are the people to be thankful for. These are the people to do life with. These are the people to stand in the trenches with even when the world seems to be going haywire. These are the people to grow with. The people to advance the gospel with. People that God has put us with to love Him and love others. See, Colossians began with Christ, and how does it end? With Christ, His greatness, His grace to each of us that is sufficient for each of us, especially in these days. Church, won't you join me? We're going to spend some time praying together now praying for people like this, thanking God in this way as we want to grow ourselves and we want others to grow. Maybe as I was preaching this, others came to mind. People to be thankful for like this. So would you just bow your heads? I'm going to close some prayer and we'll sing a song together as well. Bow your heads and let's pray. God in heaven, here we are. Your people from various places, just grateful to be saved grateful to know you, grateful to be part of this church, grateful to be part of an interconnected community of believers all around the globe. So we tell you thanks for that. But we also, even now, God, I just tell you thank you for putting this person into my life. You know the names we just in our prayers want to tell you God thank you for putting this person or maybe these people in our life along the way who have encouraged us in the faith Lord there are people on our minds that are uh, no longer uh, part of us that have been sent out, whether on specific gospel assignments or moved for uh, job purposes, those whom we miss and love, we just tell you thank you for these people as well. Father, there are those on our minds that we know need encouragement today, need to be comforted for various reasons, either uh, through the time of affliction, suffering, disease, maybe they're just burned out. Maybe they've had a rough go of the last several years, God. Just ask right now, would you encourage this person in this situation?
Father, thank you. Just lastly pray that you would give grace to those who lead us spiritually. Thank you for the people that you have put in our lives that uh, are you hold accountable for our growth. Lord, would you give them grace today? Father, we just acknowledge we live in a world where the individual is supreme. Where being true to yourself is the supreme ethic of the age. We're just thankful, God, that uh, that's not true. That you, Christ, are supreme. And you have put us in community for our good in the gospel's advancement. So would you grow us as a church in this next season, even through the summer, as individual and family plans uh, disrupt the rhythms of normal life. We just acknowledge, God, that it is your grace, your grace that has connected us. So we worship you because of it. We tell you, thank you for it. All glory to you, Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.